Thanks, Jason. Hey, everyone. Great to see you all here today. I hope you come uh, with expectation because uh, I think that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to come with expectation because he's here and he's good, okay? Those two things alone should just light our hearts up. And when we come with expectation, we just come with open hearts saying, God, I want what you have for me today. I want to receive it. I want, to, I want to take steps ahead in my walk with you. When we do that, God always speaks to us. And, and so he's here today, and our lives are going to be changed today. Not just temporarily, but changed forever. And because of that, other people's lives are going to be changed forever as well. So uh, let's pray. Then I have a joke for you, and then we're going to jump right into the message, Okay. Yeah, Father, uh, we are so thankful, thankful that we can know you. It's just amazing. It's amazing that we can know you. You're, you're the creator of the universe, and, and you love us. And you, you focus your heart and your attention on each one of us. Thank you for that. Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. We just welcome you right now to fill this room with your presence and teach us. We open our hearts to you and we say we want more. We want to understand more deeply. We want to experience the the triune God and the life of the triune God more fully. And Lord Jesus, of course, it's all about you. Uh, You redeemed us. You you, uh, brought us out of death into life. And we want to exalt you and honor you today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it seems there was this couple that were out at a party late one night, and they're driving home after the party, and they stopped at a red light, and uh, the husband didn't have a seatbelt on. So a police cruiser comes up beside them, and the the officer sees that he doesn't have a seatbelt on. He flags them, and he gets out, walks up to the window, and you know says, sir, you don't have your seatbelt on. I'm going to have to ticket you for that. And the man says, officer, I always wear my seatbelt. I never take it off. The only reason I took it off was I had to to scratch my back. And so I took it off just right here at the light. And I was just getting ready to put it back on. And so the officer, he's heard stuff like this before. He leans down. He looks across the car and asks the wife. He says, ma'am, is that true? Does your husband always wear his seatbelt? And she starts to speak. And the husband says, don't talk. And he said, ma'am, and she starts to speak again. He says, you be quiet. And then the officer looked at her and said, ma'am, does your husband talk to you this way all the time? And she said, officer, only when he's had too much to drink. <laughs> so we know who got the better of that exchange, don't we? <clears throat> All right. Well, let's get started here. Have you ever been in a class or um, at an event, uh, maybe a concert or a church service or a conference, or maybe some situation at work where things just weren't going the way you had anticipated? They weren't going the way you wanted them to, and you're unhappy about it. And because of that, you start to draw back at a heart level. You know, this could be a, uh, a family reunion or a Thanksgiving dinner, and Aunt Joe was supposed to say the prayer, but Cousin Bob instead 
somehow he took that upon himself and there's tension in the air and you're, you're upset and you're just thinking, you know, I wish I wasn't here. Uh, I remember in seminary, one of the very first classes I took uh, was a class I was really eager to take. I loved the topic, but the professor was just one year away from retiring and, um, and he rambled and it seemed like he didn't have a plan at all for the class. And it seemed like there were times it wasn't like he was just coming up with new ideas. It seemed like he was sitting there thinking, what should I say next? And I had a teaching degree at that time, and I had taught school for two years. And so I was young and kind of full of myself. And I was pretty judgmental, pretty harsh in my mind and heart towards this professor. And I really did not like that class. Now, I studied hard, and, and I got a good grade because I had to get the grades, or at least I wanted the grades, But because of my attitude, I did not get out of that class what I could have gotten out of that class. So, ratchet ahead a few years, I'm at a conference, and I had high expectations for this conference, and it wasn't going the way I had expected or I had hoped or what I actually signed up for. And I'm getting upset about that, thinking, why am I here? Should have just stayed home. And, uh, and, and again, at a heart level, I'm just drawing back from in- involvement in, in the conference itself. And, and I'm justifying that in my mind and in my thoughts. And, and then I, I thought of my friend who was there also, who was fully engaged. But he and I agree on everything, just about philosophically. And, and I knew he saw the same things that I saw. And he came with the same expectations I came with. And yet somehow he wasn't drawing away from it. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm praying. I'm saying, God, why is it that he's still staying engaged at a heart level? I don't understand how he can do that when things are going the direction they are. And God spoke to me very quickly and said this. He never views himself as a victim. Okay? He never, he, your friend... He's got this down. He never views himself as a victim. So I'm thinking, well, okay, what are you really trying to say here, God? You know, is, is, there, is there a message for me in this? And of course there was. I mean, for me, it was, okay, Lord, I am viewing myself as a victim. And, my, and immediately I understood what, what was happening. My friend saw himself as somebody who had something to offer to that situation, who could bring influence, could bring God's presence to it and have an impact in it. I was viewing it all from, here's what's happening, I don't like what's happening, therefore I can have no impact, no influence, I'm just going to draw back and, and not really engage, not really be part of it. Well, th- this whole idea of victimization is something that is so popular today that, um, I mean, if, if someone says a word you don't like, you're considered a victim today. But I, I want to say that's not what a victim is. A victim is someone who is overpowered by a superior force. That's what a victim is. If you're walking downtown and you go down the wrong alley and and three guys jump out from behind a dumpster and mug you, you're a victim. If you walk past the same three guys and, and they make fun of you, they say something unkind to you, that doesn't make you a victim. You're not a victim unless you have a victim mentality and embrace victimhood in that moment. 
And what I want to say is that although I know words are powerful, the Bible says that words can cut like a sword or words can bring healing. We know that. They are powerful. But as far as having power over us, we give them the power they have over us. And again, five-year-old, full-grown adult, uh, ridiculing the five-year-old, telling them they'll never amount to anything. The five-year-old's a victim in that case because of the disparity of power and strength in the relationship. But victimization goes beyond simply thinking about what is said to each other. That's so much of it in our culture today, but, uh, or so much of what we focus on in our culture today. But victimization, really, as, as we're addressing it today, and having a victim mentality can apply to situations in life that we just don't like. You know, a storm comes through and knocks a tree down, and it crushes your car or takes out part of your house, and, and you, you view that as it's unfair. You know, victims say, it's unfair, this isn't right, this shouldn't be, and, 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 then, and then draw back from any type of aggressive action they could take to engage with the situation and to make it better. And, and so it can, it can apply to work, it can apply to home, it can apply to your neighborhood and someone who plays their music too loud, or, or driving driving in, in traffic. You know, <clears throat> someone with a victim mentality will set their course that they're going to take. I'm going to go up this street over and, and I'm going to take, take this road the rest of the way in and then get really angry at other drivers for choosing the same course and blame them for, I'm, I'm late because, you know, why do all these drivers, why can't they drive right? Why can't they drive faster? Why can't they all? And, and so a victim mentality can, can, it can and does show up in just multiple areas of life. And, and I want to tell you, it's debilitating. It, it's a killer. I mean, who wants to live with somebody who views themselves as a victim? And in vic, vic, victimization, when, we've, when we view ourselves with the victim mentality, we have a tendency to engage in self-pity. And I mean, li, living, living with someone, being in friendship, relationship, working with someone who's constantly engaged in self-pity, I mean, that's, that's something that you might end up feeling like you're the victim then, which you shouldn't do. But um, <clears throat> this is really important that we understand some aspect of how we can walk out of feeling like victims and having a victim mindset. But before we do that, just a couple of thoughts. One of the things about a victim is a, a, victim, a victim mentality at the foundation believes that it is powerless, that's, that's the foundational thought. I am powerless. Because remember, a true, true victimization is being overcome by a more powerful force. And so if, I'm, if I have a victim mentality, then I am saying that everything around me is more powerful than me. You know, the situation that I'm in, the people at work, the other drivers that I encounter on the way to work, they're all more powerful than me. And, and, and so victimization is based upon, or, or this victim mindset is based upon the feeling of powerlessness. And that causes us to withdraw, because if this is a tough situation and I have nothing to offer it, then 
you know, I might as well just pull away from it and disengage from it. It causes us to blame others. It causes us to avoid responsibility, to refuse to be responsible for our actions because they made me feel this way. If they hadn't done what they did, I wouldn't have done what I did. And so we, we blame others and refuse responsibility. And another characteristic is this, the sense of entitlement. If, if I have a victim mindset, then I probably also feel entitled that somebody owes me something because they've all taken stuff away from me. They've taken my happiness away, my joy away. They haven't, they haven't seen the great characteristics and skill set I have, and that's what's kept me from advancing because you know these people are against me. And so it, it leads a person to feel like they are entitled to some form of reparations or some, some, um, some action that is in response to what they view as, as being victimized. Now, I think Judas Iscariot was one of the all-time great um, people with a victim mindset. And, and I say that because of this. Somehow, he was in, an, he was in a close relationship with... 12 other people, including Jesus, and he held the common purse, and somehow he justified in his mind stealing money from his best friends. Somehow he justified that. Now, how, how would he have justified that? I, you know, the Bible doesn't say this, but maybe he felt like he was the best one of the bunch and no one recognized that. They are so lucky to have me here and yet Peter's the one who's always standing up and blabbing on like that. And John's the one that always gets to be close to Jesus. And here I am. And yet if they just knew how good I am and how, I mean, how, how skilled I am and how powerful I am, boy. And, and so he takes on that victim mentality and then he's owed something. And so he pays himself out of the common fund. But I think as well, you look at the life of Judas, and when he's actually confronted with the reality of what he has done and who he is, what does he do? Does he say, I can't, you know, I, I, my, I, I, my eyes are opened. I see this now. Oh, God, forgive me. I'm wrong. Look what I did. Can you, can you possibly forgive me, God? No, he didn't do that. He, he saw what had happened, and he... he he cascaded, he collapsed into self-pity. And self-pity is a big characteristic of a victim mindset. He, he just collapsed into self-pity. And rather than standing up and being responsible, he takes the easy way out. He hides, he runs away. And, and in many respects, the ultimate act of avoiding responsibility is suicide. And, and so he, he takes his own life rather than face uh, honestly, what he had done, and, and so th- there's there's this thing that in our culture it's like breathing the air in the culture we live to think of victimization. And if if you listen to the news, if you read the papers, if you just go with the flow, it's going to be very very hard not to walk through life feeling like you are being victimized unfair, you're not being treated right, they aren't giving you your due, and on and on and on. And then there are times when we are honestly, legitimately being victimized. If your boss doesn't pay you what he owes you, and you have no recourse to that, 
then you could say, yeah, you, you are being victimized in that. But even then, you don't have to respond with a victim mentality. And that's where I want this whole thing to go is that whether it's just the issues of life coming against you or you are actually truly a victim, either way, you don't have to allow that outside force to control who you are, how you live, or how you express your heart. And when we begin to break this idea of a victim mentality, then we begin to walk in the joy that Jesus gives us. We begin to walk in the peace that Jesus gives us because Jesus walked in peace. He, he, didn't, he was not a victim. A lot of people look at Jesus and think, well, he was a victim. There was a, there was a plot against him. They actually carried that plot out and took his life. So, I mean, in a lot of respects, you would just say, well, yeah, he was victimized, but he was not a victim because he never saw himself as a victim. He never saw himself as powerless in any situation. When Satan in the wilderness met him in the wilderness and, and, he, and he brings these temptations against Jesus, since you're the son of God, why don't you just take these stones and turn them into bread? And you know, a lot of people make a big deal out of if you are the son of God as if Satan was attacking Jesus' identity. And that's not the way the text reads. It, it should be translated, since you're the son of God, do this. And so he was, he was agreeing that Jesus was the son of God. He was just trying to get him to use his sonship the wrong way. And so since you're the son of God, why don't you just throw yourself down? Everyone will see the angels catch you and you'll be, you'll be exalted and elevated. Every time Jesus responded in effect saying, you know what? I am the son of God and that's why I'm not going to do that. And so he affirms his identity and he affirms truth. But he did not have a victim mindset. When Pilate, um, when he's standing before Pilate and he's being accused and questioned, uh, Jesus says, you don't have any power over me. You think you do, but you really don't have any power over me other than what's been given to you by my father. And so again, he's tying himself into the father, which is his identity. And he recognizes that it's, it's, he's trusting God's power in that whole situation. And so when you look at that and, and you ask yourself, well, how can I live like that? How can I break from this attitude that, that, um, that I, I, I believe that my events around me control me or that my feelings are someone else's fault or that my joy and happiness is dependent upon someone else? How can I break from that? And you know, one of the ways it does show up is victims uh, will be manipulative, okay? So you have a husband and a wife, and the wife says, honey, what movie do you want to go to tonight? And he says, oh, I don't care, honey, whatever you would like. He doesn't mean that at all. And she says, well, there's this new cartoon Smurf movie where they have flowers and rainbows. I'd love to see that. And he, and his, his temperature begins to rise internally, but... He's already committed himself, so he smiles and says, okay, honey, let's go there. As they're buying the tickets, he's, he's getting hotter, and they finally sit down, and she can tell something's wrong. And do you know what he's thinking? 
He's thinking, I told her two weeks ago I wanted to see that new war movie. If she ever listened to me, I mean, she expects me to listen to her, but she doesn't listen to me. And if she really loved me, she would have remembered that I said I wanted to see that movie. And when I said I didn't care what movie I go to, she would have thought of me instead of herself. And she would have said, let's go to the war movie. You see how twisted that is? Okay, that's a guy that views himself as a victim of circumstances. He won't be direct. He won't say what he thinks because he feels powerless somehow. He feels that if he does that, something bad will happen. But then he gets mad when he doesn't do it and things happen that he doesn't like. And so that's one of the things that happens. And we've got to, we've got to break this victim mindset in order to have good relationships in order to just to walk in peace and joy, we have to break the victim mindset. Jesus did it. Um, here's what Romans 8 says, 837. And in this, in this context, the apostle Paul was talking about facing hardships in life and difficulties in life and persecution and all this stuff that you look at and you say, all bad stuff, all stuff I don't want to happen to any of my kids or me for that matter. But then here's what Paul says, uh, John 837 He's, uh, you know, this and this and this, bad, bad, bad. And, and then he says, no, wait a second. Just stop, the, you know, just hold your horses, stop the buses. No, in all these things, in the midst of all of it, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's saying, Jesus was a conqueror and in him, I am a conqueror. So you're not a victim, you're a victor. We have to recognize that and really begin to believe that. And the way that hat starts is it starts as words in my brain. And I'm not a victim, I'm a victor. But the Holy Spirit starts to reveal more of that to us. And I start to see, okay, I'm really starting to see this now, God. I'm seeing more deeply what it means when I say I'm not a victim, I'm a victor. I am a more than a conqueror through Christ. And it starts to be revealed to me. And then it starts to penetrate my thinking so that it becomes more the way I look at life than the old victim mindset way. But to realize we are, not, we are not victims, we're victors. More than conquerors means super conquerors. We're super conquerors. So if you know Jesus, you are a super conqueror. Is it too much for me to say you're a super superhero? Maybe a little bit, I don't know. Who's, who's your favorite superhero? Pick them, that's who you are, all right? Let's all just say this together. We're gonna to say this. We're gonna say, I am not a victim, but a victor, all right? Let's say it together. I am not a victim, but a victor, again. I am not a victim, but a victor, again. I am not a victim, but a victor, all right? If you know Jesus, that's true of you. If you haven't invited Jesus into your heart yet, you know, he's, he's here. He's sitting right beside you right there. He's just waiting. He's just waiting for you to say, Jesus, come on. Come in. I want relationship with you. I want to know you. And all you have to do is ask him. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I don't want to be a victim. I want to walk in victory with you. Come into my life. He'll change you. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new identity. And you'll begin to walk in that victory that he already won for us on the cross. Do you know in John 16, 33, um, Jesus said to us, this is not on the screen, it just popped in my mind first service. But um, G Jesus said, 
These things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. Then he says this, in the world you're going to have what? Who knows? Tribulation, trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Okay, Jesus went through it all and he walked through it all with an attitude of victory and understanding who he was. And so he's already overcome it. And his victory is your victory. His victory is my victory. So we can walk as victors. We don't have to walk any longer as victims with that victim mindset. So here's, here's a thought, this key thought. This is it. Affirm your identity in Christ. All right? Affirm your identity in Christ. Affirm it. Say it. Speak it. Think it. Write it down on three by five cards. But not just for the sake of memorizing the words, but also you're constantly saying, Holy Spirit, reveal this to me. Show me more. Show me more of what this means. Show it to me in more depth. Make it more a part of who I am. Let me understand more deeply and more fully who I am in Christ. And as you do, the Holy Spirit answers that question. He takes simple words and simple phrases, and he shows you, that, you know, you, you were at this, you, you understood the words, he takes you to a new depth of understanding of it, and another, another layer of depth of understanding to it, and it just becomes a part of who you are, ultimately. And that, that's what, what happens then is the new creation that you are inside, you are a new creation and when our minds then become saturated and, and, and our minds become renewed by truth, it brings everything into sync so that the new heart I have, which is what drives my desires and my longing for more of Jesus and to honor him and to serve him and to love others, because if I'm really a believer, then I have all those desires inside, then those, those things are released in a new, and just in a new way, powerful way. But... Um, Affirm your identity in Christ. Let's look at a few verses that talk about our identity in Christ. I would encourage you to get a pen and write down these references so you can read these later because I would encourage everyone here to pick one of these verses and memorize it. You pick one of these passages, a couple of them are two, two verses, one, a couple of them are just one verse. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Ask God, show me more. Make it more a part of who I am. But the first one is this. It's Revelation 5.10. And here, speaking of believers, it says, you have made them, meaning you and me, believers, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What that's saying is, if you're a believer in Christ, you are royalty. You are kings and queens. You are priests. The difference between a king and a priest is that a priest is the one who goes to God and then comes back and represents God to people and then represents people to God. A king is one who rules with authority. And so as kings, we have authority. And as priests, we have access to intimacy with God and we get to take him then and give him to other people so they can come and have access to intimacy with God too. And he says, we're going to reign on the earth. And so this is, this is power. This is life. This is authority. So there's no situation that you're ever in that that verse isn't true. Any situation you're in, you are a child of the king. Therefore, if you want to call yourself a prince or a king, whatever, a queen or a princess, you are royalty. And 
you are going to reign on this earth. And so you're in that situation and you're frustrated and you say, wait a second, I don't have to be frustrated by this. It's not going the way I'd like it to. It's not going the way I think it should even maybe. But I don't have to be frustrated by this. And I, I am going to reign in this. I'm, I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to, I'm not going to view myself as just a victim of this situation. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit's power to flow through me in this situation. And how can I be used by God in this situation? So we're going to look at that in a little bit. But um, second verse, 12, Luke 12, 32. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses. It unlocked an awful lot about who God is to me because it said, do not be afraid, little flock. That's us. We're little flock here now. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. All right. God the Father is not up there reluctantly dispensing kingdom blessings. Okay, Jesus died for you. He made the kingdom accessible. I really don't like you much. But here, here's some blessings. No, it delights his heart to release the life of the kingdom to his children. It makes him glad. Did you know God can be glad? It makes him glad. And so that means he really does love you. He really, really loves you. He loves you like a father loves a child and is so glad to bless that child. But he blesses you with the kingdom. And so not only are you royalty, but you actually have a place to reign. You have a kingdom. As it said, we're going to reign on the earth. Third verse is 2 Peter 1.3. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Are you lacking anything? Do you ever think, well, other people must have something I don't have, and that's why they, they you know, are the way they are and I am the way I am. No, this is saying you're not lacking anything. He has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We don't have time to go into all of this. But knowledge doesn't mean head knowledge. It means experiential knowledge with the life of God by which he has granted to us the precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So God gives us everything we need for godliness and he gives us these incredible promises which possess life in them. That's what this is saying. God's promises possess life. And when you tap into a promise of God and you begin to understand it and you believe it, it releases life. I'm not sure the life is outside us because we have Jesus in us, but something is released so that we experience more of his life. And he says the divine nature. And so I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to put it this way. If you've accepted Jesus, then you have divine DNA in you. You have, you have divine DNA. And so not only you're a king, not only do you have a kingdom or a queen, you have a kingdom, you also have royal DNA. Okay, royal, your royal DNA. And then you go on and you look at the last verse, Ephesians 1, 3. And it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So 
the Father has already blessed us through Christ with everything, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. <clears throat> That's an incredible promise that, that, again, affirms what Peter said. You have everything. You have it all. You need to believe those promises. Now, I'm not saying that uh, there isn't more deeper experience with God. I, I believe firmly that these things are unlocked in us as we experience God's presence. It's as we experience his presence in faith, experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the knowledge, the, the presence, the experience of God. So when, when the Holy Spirit comes and, and, and we're just experiencing his presence, we need to say, Lord, just unlock stuff in me. Show me, show me new things. Open my eyes to see more deeply because I want to walk in everything you have for me. And so affirm your identity. That's, that's crucial. Um, I remember once when I was younger and we had three little kids, probably six, four, and two, something like that. That's hard, you know. Anybody know that's hard? That's hard. It's tiring. It's hard to be patient. I was being impatient. And I was praying, oh, God, give me patience. Give me the fruit of the Spirit of patience. Yeah, it's not easy, is it? And, um, and it suddenly it dawned on me, wait a second, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit, so I have that fruit in me. I just need to touch it. I need to tap into it. I need to release it. I need to let it, let it out, to, let it li- to live in it. You know, a little side note to this. <clears throat> uh, probably 10 years ago, uh, when... Well, maybe longer than that now, probably 15 years ago when Wilson was 10 or 11 years old. Um, you know, we had three children close together, and then eight years later, we had Wilson. So by this time, the other kids are all grown, and, and, and Will's <laughs> our only little one. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, I'm so, I am so much of a better parent today than I was when the older kids were this age, and I'm so much more patient now, and kind, and loving, and tolerant, Literally, I'm thinking the very next day, literally, the next day I had Wilson and Luke Hazelmeyer, who's one of our young adult pastors, and his little brother, Joey, all three in the car at the same time. And they're like 12, 11, and nine, something like that. And I thought, I am no more patient than I ever have been. I just, it's so much easier having one than three. But listen... That character, God's put it in you, and this whole idea of victimization, if I have a victim mindset that just kind of like crushes it down, it doesn't release it. When I deal with this victim mindset, there's going to be things released in my heart and life. They're going to be phenomenal. You're going to see amazing things. I think most of us have heard of Marie Antoinette. Anybody? Yeah, you've heard of Marie Antoinette. Um, She was the queen of France when the French Revolution occurred. And um, she's well known for a quote that she never made, which is, let them eat cake. And what it was, was the people were starving, and someone said uh, to the queen, they don't have bread. And she's being presented as an idiot who was so, so uninvolved with people that she thought, well, if they don't have bread, why don't they just eat cake instead? You know, of course, if you don't have bread, you don't have cake either. That's the point of it. She didn't say that. In fact, she was a compassionate person who actually cared about the poor 
and gave money to feed the poor and did things to help the poor. But um, during the French Revolution, they were killing everybody and they killed her husband and then they took her to court and trumped up charges against her and she was going to be executed. And so she's on the way to the, to the execution and she says to the guy driving the cart something about being afraid of how the people are going to treat her as, as they drive her through the streets. And the guy says, well, don't worry, your, your execution will expiate you, which means it'll, your sins will be forgiven by it. And she said, I don't need expiation. She said, I made mistakes, but I, never, I didn't do anything that they've accused me of. So she wasn't hesitant to speak truth, just boldly, straight out like that. When she got to the actual gallows where they had the guillotine, walking up the steps, one of her shoes came off. And they say they still have that shoe in a museum somewhere. But so she goes up onto the, onto the platform with one shoe, and she accidentally stepped on the executioner's foot. And she immediately turned and apologized to him. Pardon me, sir. Now, I can't imagine. I mean, she was really a victim, I believe. She was really a victim. She didn't, she didn't deserve what was happening, a superior force overwhelming her. But in spite of that, she did not allow what was happening to her to change who she was. She didn't allow that to change her basic character that she carried herself in a dignified manner that she really did care about people, even the guy who's about to take her life. And I don't know if she was a believer or not, but really anyone, anyone, any human being has control of their own emotions. But when you're a Christian, I mean, think about it. Not only do you get a new heart, you get the God of the universe living in you. He puts his fruit in you. His spirit is in you. Jesus, who is victorious, is in you. I mean, how much more should we be able to just say, I'm not going to live as a victim any longer. I'm never going to be in a situation again where I feel powerless because the, the power of the Holy Spirit is in me, even in that situation. And so there are some, there are some steps I'm going to conclude with here. But um, I, I, I really get these from some, uh, a couple of passages. I'll just briefly enumerate the passages. But step one is affirm your identity in Christ. You want to be free Affirm who you are in Jesus. Take one of these passages or all of them that I just mentioned and meditate on them. Um, another, another one is this. Keep moving forward no matter what. Keep moving forward no matter what. The Apostle Paul on one occasion uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, um, or 2 Corinthians, I can't remember which, but he says, I came to Troas looking for um, Titus. And Titus wasn't there. And even though I had the opportunity to preach there, I wasn't comfortable staying there. So I went on to Macedonia looking for Titus. And he finds Titus. But then he says this. He says, in the midst of that confusing situation, he says, thank God that he always leads us in a procession of triumph. And so what he's saying was, I went here, didn't find what I was looking for. So I went there. But that whole thing was a procession of triumph. Because everywhere I went, I carried God's presence with me, and I declared the gospel of Christ and the presence of God. And so, no matter what, I say this, keep moving forward. Don't, don't hang back. Don't stop. 
Um, another time, Paul and his band had decided that they wanted to go east. Now, a lot of times, I think as believers, we decide we want to do something, but then we kind of over-spiritualize it, and we try to make it sound like God told us to do it, all right? Like, maybe I just have the idea, I'm going to go to Dayton, I'm going to go to the mall there, and I'm going to pray for people. But I want it to sound more spiritual, so I kind of like nuance that. I think God's leading me to go to Dayton to the mall to pray for people. Well, look, there's nothing wrong with me just deciding to go to the mall in Dayton to pray for people. That's okay, all right? So here, Paul, they've decided to go to the east to take the gospel there. I don't know if, they, if there was anything more to it. But when they get to the, to the um, threshold of that, the Holy Spirit tells them you can't go there. Now, maybe if I'm on Paul's team, I'm thinking, Paul, I'm losing confidence in you. I thought you were going to figure out where God wanted us to go and take us there. And here now I find out it was just you saying, let's go to the east. But at any rate, what happens is they don't go there, but they keep listening. And Paul has a vision in, in the night and God speaks to him and says, hey, really what I want you to do is go this direction. And so they get up the next morning and say, all right, let's go. We, we, thought we're good. we thought it was a good idea to go there, but you don't, God. So we're going to go here. And so this third point is this. Always listen for God to speak in the situation. Always listen for God to speak in the situation. Now, if you're struggling with a victim mentality, I am not going to say, ask him to tell you what he's doing in your life in the situation. Because most people with a victim mentality are already too wrapped up in themselves, too introspective, too much thinking about me. And so I'm saying this, I'm saying listen for God to speak and ask God, where are you working? What are you doing in this situation? How can I be part of it? Because what that does is it puts our focus out there instead of in here. And we break this victim mentality when we feel, we sense God's power, we know God's power is in us. We know that no matter what the situation, we can move forward, and his power in us is our our identity in Christ and his power in us, and we know that no matter what, we can keep moving forward, and we know that no matter what, we have God's presence in us to impact this situation, so God, where are you working, and how can I cooperate with it? And as we take these steps, um, all of it based upon affirming our new identity in Christ, we'll just see some remarkable things happen in our lives. Now, the steps I took that morning, that day that God spoke to me about victim mentality were these. I said, God, you're right. I'm viewing myself as a victim. And then second thing, but I know I'm not a victim. I know that. And third thing was, uh, by nature, I'm your child. I'm empowered by, by you for victory and I, and I carry your presence everywhere I go to bless others. And so, God, I'm asking you this. Show me where you're working and how I can get involved. And if you follow that, those steps, you will begin to break free of this whole thing of a victim mentality. You'll experience a greater freedom in life, greater joy, and a, just a much more powerful impact on the lives of those around you. So... I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, Jason's going to come up, and he's going to lead us into the next part of our service. But, uh, Father, we, we do want what you have for us, and so we just ask you to speak to our hearts. Show us in whatever situation we're in uh, uh, what, what our true identity is. Show us 
what, what a step forward looks like. Uh, show us where you're working so we can cooperate with what you're doing and, and be engaged with you in bringing your message into this world. In Jesus' name, amen.